Hi, Pastor Rob here from Blessed Hope Chapel and RobCartlidgeMinistries.com. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. Alright, so just turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. Now this sermon is what we call an uh, apologetic sermon. It's uh, a sermon that's not going to be totally filled with Scripture. There, there are a few Scriptures, but what it's doing is it's bringing forth an, uh, a sort of a counter-argument to what is commonly accepted in the world today in relation to, or in this case evolution and the origins of, of man or the origins of the universe. So I want to bring this to you because I think it's a really important thing that we need to uh, get in the head and understand. There is a lot to this. this currently this sermon I, I wrote probably enough yesterday for about three or four sermons. So I'm not going to go through the whole lot now. I will be going as far as I can into this sermon and we will uh, you know, continue it in future weeks. But uh, as I got into different subjects in relation to evolution, I felt I needed to elaborate a little bit. So I'm going to do my best to explain all the, all the, or as many terms as I need to, uh, explain just what this is all about so that you can get a pretty good understanding. You don't have to be a science whiz to understand what I'm going to be explaining today because I'm certainly not a science whiz. Uh, So the reason we come up, we should know our apologetics, we should know how to have a reasoned argument uh, in response to people in the world that are saying, why do you believe in this Jesus fairy tale, this you know God fairy tale, is because the word tells us to. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says this, if I can find it, 1 Peter 15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. So that's the first thing. Set apart Christ as Lord. Don't be shaken by contrary beliefs. Just make sure in your heart Christ is Lord. This is always be prepared to give an answer. Now, to be prepared to give an answer to someone means you've got to do some research, you've got to do some study, you've got to know what you're talking about. There's a lot of people that try to give answers to things and they know nothing about the subject. So do your research, do your study so you can give an adequate answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, that's in relation to our hope, but that... uh, that uh, question that they're going to ask you is always going to be aimed at shaking your hope. Who knows that? Who's been had atheists attack them online or whatever? They always aim the question to shake your hope, try to tell you that God doesn't exist. And we have to have already considered the argument that they're actually posing to us. And if we haven't, we've got to then do some research and find out and give them an adequate answer back because the Bible tells us to do that. And it also says after that to do this with gentleness and respect. And I suppose many of us could learn to do that better because I, I know I need to. Okay, so God versus science. Many people today believe that science and belief in God are at odds. Many people will tell you science proves that God doesn't exist. Who's heard that? Yep, I've heard it many times. People will say, I can't believe you still think you know, in such archaic forms when we have science today. They try to tell you that science is an alternative to God and a much better one and even 
trumps God. But is that the truth? We've got to ask ourselves, is that statement the truth? Is science really an enemy of God? And I'll tell you right now that it was Christian men, to the most part, who were the first scientists. It was Christian men that launched science right back at Francis Bacon's day and, and onwards uh, in, with the modern scientific methods as we know them. And they were Christian men, many of them. I think Francis Bacon was a bit hairy around the whole Christian subject, uh, but he was at least a believer in, in God. He was a theist. If that were true then, if it was true that science was at odds with God, then Christians by right should not be able to practice science. Is that right? If science and God are completely different, you know, spectrums of the universe, and they should not, one shouldn't mix with the other, like oil and water, then Christians can't practice science. But is that the case? There's thousands, thousands and thousands of Christians who practice science. Science itself is just a method, just a method of observing the observable world. It really cannot speak about a spiritual realm that it can't observe. So by right, it has no place in talking about religious matters because it cannot observe something it can't see. It can only observe things it can see. But the spiritual realm is a realm that God or science cannot speak in relation to because it's an unobserved phenomenon. So the fact is that many leading scientists today are theists. So many scientists today are theists, a lot of them. In, in my sermon, A War Against God, I go right through the subject of whether science is really at war with religion. If you listen to that sermon, it turns out that science is fine with God. It is naturalism and materialism, which are the two world views and ideologies that oppose God. So it's, it's, it's scientists who are naturalists or it's scientists who are materialists that are actually in opposition to God and the concept of God. It's not science itself. So when a naturalist speaks against God, don't assume that's science speaking. Science doesn't speak. That's that person's private religious opinion speaking against God because that person's a naturalist. But the scientist like uh, John Lennox, who's a Christian, will speak on behalf... Well, if he speaks through science, he won't even oppose their religious views, which is naturalism. But if he opposes their naturalist views, it's because... He speaks as a Christian from his ideology. Does that make sense? So we've got to clear that up because a lot of people have a real misconception in relation to all this. Who's heard of microevolution? Yeah? Most of us probably know a little bit about microevolution. Is microevolution an observable fact? Yeah, microevolution is an observable fact. No one has or no one should have any problem with microevolution. If you get... A long-haired dog and another long-haired dog, you breed them, you'll get more long-haired dogs. And if you, but the shorter-haired ones, if you accumulate them together and you breed them together, you'll eventually get shorter-haired dogs and, and so on. That's all microevolution. No problem with that. So microevolution is evolutionary change within a species or small groups of organisms. So microevolution takes place within species. Cats breed with cats, dogs breed with dogs, elephants breed with elephants, you know, but you don't see elephants breeding with cats, right? In, in the natural, we know that's ridiculous. 
Now, the scientists will say that's ridiculous, but then it will say that there was a series of different animals that led up to an elephant. So maybe down the line, I don't know all the different you know, animals that they put in order, maybe down the line, the elephant many, many millions of years ago was a cat, according to evolution. You know, because it progressed up. They've got no evidence for that, by the way. It's just the, it's in the minds of men that they come up with those theories. But the fact is, microevolution, you don't have any of that. It's within species. And it's fun. We all, we all see it, you know. We all see it all the time. Uh, so this change within species is due to four different processes. One is a thing called mutation and which I'm going to be talking uh, a bit at length about because they think the whole concept of the theory of mutation is the answer to evolution, the problem that they have with things evolving from species to species. Uh, also selection, both natural and artificial. They, I remember they uh, seeing an article on horses and the smallest horses, they kept breeding together until they had this tiny little horse, useless little thing. Can't put a saddle on it, nothing, but it was a tiny little horse. So they, they artificially did that. <laughs> Be good for May Lee, wouldn't it, a little horse like that? <laughs> so this change is due to four different processes, mutation, natural selection or artificial selection, uh, a thing called gene flow, just to get a definition of it, also known as gene migration. It's the transfer of genes from one population group to another. Uh, and there's also a thing called genetic drift, which is um, the change in the frequency of a gene variant. So if you're, any, if you're scientific, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and it's a variant within a population due to random sampling, randomly take, uh, sampling genes. Now, macroevolution. Now, notice, notice this diagram. On the bottom, we have microevolution, which is variations within the species of the lizards. Now, the problem arises when they bring in a thing called macroevolution. And macroevolution is that the lizard, through progressive stages, becomes a bird. Okay? So the scales turn into feathers. Uh, it's, I don't know where the wings come from, but the wings will come out. It's a pretty good morphing of an image. You know, it's, it's really easy to do it when you draw it or use software. You can show this macroevolutional progression. However, no one's ever seen it done in nature. You don't see this sort of thing taking place in nature. You only see it in the drawings of men who visualize it and do what they call, who's heard the term morphing. You know, changing. If, if you get a lizard and you use this morphing software and put a bird, you can see this incredible change into a bird. But it's all artificial, it's not real. It doesn't happen in nature. So macroevolution is major evolutionary change, major evolutionary change. The term applies mainly to the evolution of whole taxonomic groups uh, over long periods of time, that all life forms evolved from less complex life forms, that all life forms today evolved from less complex life forms. That's the theory. So if that was the case, there would be many intermediate links. We would see, you know, lizards at different stages in the fossil record, wouldn't we, if that was the case? Unfortunately, we don't have any. The fossil record has not come up with anything. We don't have any intermediate links in the fossil record. 
paleontologists are beside themselves. They say, there's nothing. We've got less now than we thought we had in Darwin's day. So this is a problem for the evolutionists. However, they don't announce this problem in textbooks. They don't announce them in science classes. It is something they've been hiding from the masses. And only the informed will go and look into this and find out the truth. And the more you find out, the more you realise, hang on, this isn't just a false teaching, this is a sinister teaching and even a conspiracy. Something that shouldn't be taking place because we should, humanity should be lovers of truth and should be trying to teach what is true, not to deceive and mislead people through disinformation. There's a thing called disinformation and misinformation. Misinformation is a, something that I might do by mistake. Say something I thought was true, but it actually isn't true. Disinformation is deliberately telling a lie to deceive people. And that's what we have in, in many respects in relation to evolution. And I'm going to, through this series of sermons, I'm going to hopefully get you to see this very, very clearly. So, and I want you to understand this. This is coming from Wikipedia. And in, that, in Wikipedia, when I looked up macroevolution, it said, contrary to claims by creationists, and creationists are people who think or believe in the Genesis account, of, uh, of how we all came to be. Macro and micro evolution describe fundamentally identical processes on different timescales. What they're trying to say is that the micro evolution that we all witness is fundamentally the same as macro evolution, uh, just different periods of time. Micro evolution might only take, you know, a generation or two or three. Macro evolution, macro evolution will take billions of years. To me, it would be a miracle for a lizard to turn into a bird. Yeah? If you just touched the lizard and became a bird, or you saw that lizard over generations turn into a bird, you'd be going, what a miracle. But they say, no, you don't need a miracle, you just need billions of years. My answer to that is, whether it takes a billion years or a moment, a miracle is a miracle. And you need a miracle for a lizard to turn into a bird. You need a miracle for a hippopotamus to turn into an elephant. Or whatever they put preceding the elephant in there. Do you know what I mean? It requires a miracle. And I believe faith in that requires incredible faith, far more than a God that just created everything like that. I think, I always say to these atheists, I, I always say, I have to give you, I have to applaud you. You have greater faith than me. Because when I reveal this thing, this sort of stuff to them, I actually say, mate, for you to continue to believe what you believe, I'm astounded. And I'm just, you know, I have to say, you, you, I can't have that much faith. Because they always say we just all exist by faith, you know, Christians. But you have to have great faith to believe in evolution and to deny the reality of an intelligent designer. And as I'm going to go along, you're going to see this more and more. In Wikipedia, they gave this example of macroevolution. It says, an example of macroevolution is the appearance of feathers during the evolution of birds from theropod dinosaurs. They just come up with that. That's an example of macroevolution. They think they got one little example. And... I, I sort of did a little bit of research on the theropod because I thought that's interesting. So the hollow, thinned bone theropod, there's an artist's depiction of the theropod, is what they are using 
to prove it is an intermediary, <laughs> intermediary between lizards and birds. They say this theropod. And research in 2005 found an excellent match between partially decayed skin. This is important. They, they think they found feathers in the fossil record. They think that this lizard had feathers. But then in researchers in 2005, because once a discovery is like that is made, scientists all over the world start looking into it. In 2005, they found an excellent match between partially decayed skin from a variety of animal carcasses uh, and dinosaur feathers then published. Even the evolutionary authors contending that calling dinosaur fibers feathers was misleading. What they're saying is this partially decayed skin appeared exactly the same as the feathers that they were claiming to be feathers in the fossil. So decayed skin fossilized appeared exactly the same as what these scientists were claiming were feathers on this uh, theropod. Can you see what the point is? So it was found to be well, not necessarily fraudulent, but they were wrong in thinking they were feathers. Anyway, they've got this really good little you know, uh, creature now they can add into the Jurassic Park series. Even if it is an extinct feathered dinosaur, and this is an important thing, that does not prove it's an intermediate, intermediate link between lizards and birds. Even if that lizard did have feathers, it doesn't prove it is a link. We can, because, you know, it could have been that God just created feathered lizards. We don't have any examples of it in the modern, modern world, but it just could be that these lizards existed in cold climates and they need warm feathers, like a little doona to wrap around them. You know what I mean? But, you know, so I don't see how that proves that it's an intermediate link, and it's been proven not to be the case anyway. So science, science, and this is important, I want you to understand, science is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behaviour of physical and natural world through observation and experiment. That's pretty well what it is. You can look that over and read that a few times to really get it in your head. It's really just a system to study the observable world. However, the unrepeatable past is a problem for science. Carl Whelan said, the sort of science which has had so many impressive achievements in our modern world is quite different from the science that seeks to investigate the unrepeatable past. The science that observes this natural world and the way we exist and comes up with the technologies and everything else and discoveries of you know, how uh, organisms work and all this sort of thing and uh, you know, um, stem cell research and all those different variants of of science, that science is a very different science to the science that observable claims to study the unrepeatable past. That sort of science is speculative. That sort of science is science that someone's sitting in his room for a long period of time and he thinks a science or a theory up. It's put in, it's in his head. I reckon that dinosaur had feathers and therefore that dinosaur would have slowly progressed and eventually grown wings and eventually would have uh, run and jumped off a cliff and used those wings and flown and you know they, they think it all up. It's a very different science. It, it, it really nearly could, may not even be considered a proper science in the sense of how we know science. It could be more philosophical than science. Because you can't prove it. 
You can't do the experiments that you want to do to prove it. Does that make sense? So it's very difficult to consider these, uh, this sort of a science as a true science. I'm not saying it's these unintelligent men, but they certainly have some wild imaginations, especially if you look at some of the things we're going to be bringing up. Theory or truth, in this book, God, Humanity and the Cosmos, this guy, Dr. Christopher Southgate and Dr. Michael Robert Negus, in, in their book, God, Humanity and the Cosmos, they wrote this. It is true that the theory of evolution cannot be completely verified by direct observation of every part of the process. So they admit it. It's true. The theory of evolution cannot be completely verified direct by direct observation of every part of the process because they can't observe it. How can they? They'd have to get in a time machine, travel back a billion plus years and to verify it. Yeah? So this is true of all theories that provide explanations for processes that involve immense periods of time. Anything that they will say, like the Big Bang Theory, immense periods of time, uh, they can't, cannot verify it. If they say the Earth is 4,600 billion years old, they cannot prove that or verify that. It's just something they say, and if enough intelligent men will say it, they make it, that's what it is. They say it's so. Evolutionary biology then is akin to Big Bang cosmology and much of astrophysics in that it offers models to explain processes. Did you hear that? It offers models. It offers an idea to explain processes which are historically particular and could never be duplicated in a laboratory. They admit it. These guys admit it. They offer a model. It's just an offer. They put it on the table. Unfortunately, this is what happens. The masses get a hold of it and they believe it to be so. They believe it to be the truth. A model that cannot be verified, cannot be proved, cannot be disproved as well. Or then again, I think in many respects we can disprove it. They offer models which cannot be totally verified by science, yet it gets promulgated as truth. And that's a problem. Who knows that? When you get into the science class, they start teaching about evolution. And if you've got a, a particular atheist teacher, he's telling you or she's telling you, it is the truth. And when you answer the, the exam and we say, you know, how did we get here? You've got to say evolution or else you fail. You know, you can't say God created us in a, in a science test, can you? You fail the test. So it's, and that's how they're, they're promulgating this, how they're pushing it around the world is through education, the education system. From classroom to classroom to classroom, kids are getting told that this stuff is the truth. And that's why I think it's, it's a deception. It's a major deception. But many people are waking up to it. And this is another thing, arrogant claims of truth. This is how, like, someone like this guy... Richard Dawkins, this is how he sort of teaches his followers. And he's got a huge, he's got a, a world top-selling book called The God Delusion. And he, he wrote a book uh, trying to prove that God's a delusion to believe in. And this is his sort of approach to it. He says, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. So people who really, you know, are an atheist or what, they won't, they won't listen to me talking about God because they're going to believe that I'm either ignorant, stupid, insane or wicked. 
Is that fair? Is that fair? That's why I think more and more that this is a conspiracy because they've got these sort of spokesmen, arrogant spokesmen who are coming out saying this. But what about this bold claim of truth? That's the Apostle Paul or a depiction of him. He said this in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. It's been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And then he adds, so that men are without excuse. The atheists have clearly seen that God exists through what has been made. It's clear to everyone. What most people don't like is the accountability factor to a holy God if they stop believing in their atheism and start believing in God. They'll become accountable. That means they have to change certain things about themselves to align themselves with a holy God. People, by their very nature, don't want to change. They want to stay the same or whatever. They want to be able to indulge in whatever they want to without any, you know, uh, having to answer to, I suppose, a holy and righteous God. And then if Richard Dawkins could get any worse, this is what he said as well. Mock them, ridicule them in public. Don't fall for the convention that we're all too polite to talk about religion. Religion is not off the table. Religion is not off limits. So he's saying it's not off limits, we should, it's not off the table. But he tells us to mock them, or atheists to mock Christians. Religion makes specific claims about the universe which need to be substantiated and need to be challenged, and if necessary, need to be ridiculed with contempt. No wonder I get on the internet and I get an atheist, the first thing out of their mouth is a whole load of swearing and cursing and telling me I'm the biggest idiot since the last biggest idiot. <laughs> because this guy is a role model to them, to, the, to these atheists, and he's telling them, mock these guys, mock the Christian, ridicule the Christian. How dare they not believe the way I believe? How dare they? And that, to me, is arrogant. That is really arrogant. And also, it's not, it's not fair. And it's also a denial. They just they don't want to consider any evidences that prove contrary. So that's what we're up against, guys. I bring that up because whenever we face this subject, we will face ridicule. We will face opposition. Now, an evolutionist believes that all life evolved from a simple-celled organism over millions of years. That's in a nutshell. There's a lot to it, but that's in a nutshell what they believe. This is a little bit more in-depth. They say highly energetic chemistry, and I like the words they use, is thought. So at least they're giving that option. It's thought to. It's not It's what happened. It's thought to have produced a self-replicating molecule around four billion years ago, and half a billion years later, the last common ancestor of all life existed. The current scientific consensus is that the complex biochemistry that makes up life came from simple, simpler chemical reactions. The beginning of life may have included self-replicating molecules such as RNA and the assembly of simple cells. Now, as I said earlier, the problem with the millions of years for these evolutionary miracles to take place, and I, I want to stress evolutionary miracles, 
for a simple cell, and I've said this to scientists, I've said when they're arguing these points, I say, have, have you in your laboratory ever seen a simple-celled organism turn into anything but a simple-celled organism? And has science itself ever seen it take place in the last hundred years, observed under a microscope? And the few that I've talked to, talk to that are in the know, not the guys that assume, oh, yes, it has. No, these guys admit, no, we've never seen it. I said, so if you've never seen a simple-celled organism become anything but a simple-celled organism, what are the chances of that thing slowly turning into like a lizard, an amphibian or something? What's the chances of it turning into a little microscopic fish? Zero. Zero. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. And I'm gonna, you're going to find out too, mut um, mutations don't change it either. Mutations may deform it, may kill it, may do a number of things, but it won't change it to become something more than what it already is. And the other thing to consider with millions of years is time tends to kill things. Who's noticed that? If you stay on Earth for around 120 years, if you manage to be there, you'll be in the record book sort of thing because time kills things. So... So this millions of years thing isn't helping the evolutionists. If anything, it's killing off everything that does exist. You know what I mean? Issues with evolutionary origins. Ab abiogenesis, who's heard of that? It's like an umbrella theory of many different theories, such as uh, primordial soup theory, Eigen's hypothesis, autocatalysis, uh, clay hypothesis, Gold's deep hot biosphere model, primitive extraterrestrial life, extraterrestrial organic molecules, lipid world, polyphosphates, and the list goes on. These are all theories about the origins of life that sit underneath the abiogenesis uh, theory. And abiogenesis is the natural process by which life arose from non-living matter, such as simple organic compounds. And as I said before, it's an umbrella theory which encompasses many models. However, there is still no standard model of the origin of life. With all these different models, there's still no standard one because each scientist has his pet one that he believes in. But none of them really does encapsulate the fullness of how we really got here. All of them fall short for many, many reasons. Now, just be thankful I'm not going to go into each of those models and uh, because I could be here for the next 20 years, I'd say, once I'm looking at the length of the articles in relation to each one. Origins of life, by chance, has two fundamental problems. Origins of life by chance, because that's really the theory of evolution, that it's chance mutations, it's chance selection, or it's selection in the sense of the fittest surviving, the weaker uh, dying, or the, the, the mother that can produce the most babies survive. They all depend on there being matter, all of these theories depend on there being a matter in the universe, meaning dirt, <laughs> something there that's tangible. They all depend on there being that dirt in the universe uh, rather than a starting point of nothing. They, they cannot account for everything coming into existence from a starting point of zero. It has to have something there to begin all of their models, all of their theories. So the question which begs to be asked is, where did the matter originate? Where did the matter originate? And not just a little bit of matter, all the matter that's in the universe. 
And if you look at the universe and you see the Earth and how big the Earth is, we are a speck in relation to some of the planets out there. There's a lot of manner, matter, and manner, should be a lot of manner waiting for us in heaven, but there's a lot of matter out there, heaps of it. Where did it come from? So they go, oh, big bang, everything in the universe compressed down to a tiny little thing. I said, well, where did the everything in the universe that compressed down to that tiny little dot come from? Where did the dot come from? Oh, and then that tiny little dot just exploded and all the massive... The, I look at them like, that's faith, man. For you to believe that, fairy tale, because to me it's a fairy tale, that sounds ridiculous. Come on. A little dot pinprick and it exploded and all the matter in the universe that we have today that came out of that. Come on. You know, I thought humanity was a bit more smart than that, you know, a bit more intelligent than that, to believe such a foolish, foolish concept. They can't explain it. They can't explain where the matter come from. That's important to know that, because we can. We can. So the origins of life by chance has two fundamental problems. Where did the matter originate? They also assume that life can spring from non-living materials and evolve from that point. So that even if we had the matter, they then got another problem. How does life spring from non-life? But we don't see, if you imagine a universe with nothing but dead, non-living matter, how does, it, how does life come out of that? And then the next thing, how does the electric, they'll say, oh, electricity will shoot from the sky. Well, where did the electricity come from? Where did that come from? So just electricity just suddenly started shooting off. Yeah, well, what originated the electricity? Oh, well, then there was water. Well, where did the water come from all of a sudden? Their theories depend on them saying, well, these are our starting conditions. Now let's see what we can do with abiogenesis. We've got a primordial suit going on, it's bubbling, you know, electricity. You know, the water's just teeming with life all of a sudden. Oh, really? I would like to see them do it. The Miller experiment was, was proved not to be early Earth conditions. And when they use what they believe, truly believe to be early Earth conditions, which is still, again, a radical theory, because they weren't there to tell what it was, it's just speculation. Anyway, they couldn't get anything, any amino acids. And even if that Miller experiment was right, they got some amino acids, then what? What are those amino acids going to do? If you leave them to their self with that electrical going off, they'll eventually they'll die. They're not going to turn into more complex organisms. Doesn't the very nature of that tell you that the, we know in our heart of hearts nothing turns into something else? I'm not one day just going to grow wings, or my future ancestors aren't going to just grow wings and become a new race of humans called angels or something like that. We're not going to suddenly grow wings, are we? Or I'm not going to suddenly bend over and become like a leopard or something. Unless they tamper with my genetics or my future children's genetics, we won't become anything but human. And every little bit of history that the human race has tells us that's the, that's the case. All human history testifies to what I'm saying. All human history testifies that we've never become anything more than what we are. We're all human. Okay, there's different, we look different from different parts of the world. The Chinese look different to the uh, Greeks, who look different to the Italians, you know what I mean? We have these slight different variations. But generally, we're human, aren't we? 
And unless we something happens, a deformity in us, we will look different. But apart from deformities, which is how they sort of try to say this mutational thing is proving evolution, it doesn't happen. So a theist should, and I say should because they should believe, <laughs> that the universe and living organisms originate from specific acts of divine creation. So God, the word says that God spoke and it came to be. Now that's all he had to write. Now we speak and we, things don't come to be when we speak. I don't say, let there be a, a rock up here right there and there's a rock, doesn't it? That's not how it works. We have to, we have to, but what we, we have as humans who are a lesser existence to God, we speak, say, I'm going to build something over there. You speak it into existence and then you follow it with works and it comes to pass if you're a man of your word now God's a man of his word it, all it says and this is we don't know the, the ins and outs of how it took place he just said God the word says God spoke and it came to be now whether that speaking caused the creation or that speaking stimulated the Holy Spirit to respond with a kind of works which is obviously it would have been a kind of work because it said God sat down from his labour, like he laboured in getting creation set up. But that's what the Bible says. So an intelligence so far beyond anything we can ever comprehend in this life, an intelligence so great, spoke and caused things to happen. He, in his mind, developed the DNA. He developed uh, the, the the laws of gravity and everything else, and then he set them in place. All science can do is observe what he did according to faith in what the, what the Bible has to say. So a theist believes that the universe and the living organisms originate from specific acts of divine creation, such as in a literal reading of the book of Genesis. And Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But it just says, In the beginning God created the heavens. That means everything we see when we look into the night sky and the earth in which we live. A theist believes in there being a starting point of a creator God. So an evolutionist believes that the starting point starts with, you know, matter, dirt, non-living material. We believe in a creator God starting everything from nothing through intelligence, through great an intelligence and a power beyond our ability to cope or comprehend with because he's a different existence. You know, you think about it, science and all its wisdom studies the human form and we, well, they're still baffled in many respects. You know, it wasn't that long ago when there was, you know, countless organs in the body that they thought had no use whatsoever. So they would announce, you know, those organs are leftovers from evolutionary ancestors, you know, from when we were apes. And then they found organ by organ, oh, we need that organ, do we? We can't remove that one and throw it in the bin. We need that one, we need that one. And before they knew it, all these organs, that they thought were useless because their methods of study wasn't up to the level that it should be to actually tell them what it actually does. They've got to the point now that the humble little appendix actually has a use. It fights sickness or yeah, and infections, fights infections and uh, I would dare say that it was something that God placed there for the success of an infant to get to a certain age after that you can 
you, you don't, what you can do without it. You don't need it to live a healthy life. So it's probably there just for that period, you know, to strengthen the immunity of a child coming into this world. But see how far science came along? Now, science has been, is baffled by the human, uh, human design. It's just, uh, and that's not just one thing it's baffled with. What about all the animals and all the other things in the world, the plant life? And there's so many questions that remain unanswered. And, and that, to me, shows that science, how dare it start to look into the things of God and try to comprehend who his existence is when he is that superior, that far more advanced and, and, and in a state of existence that we have no concept of. We can't comprehend it. They're baffled just with us. Like, just stick with what you see. Stop talking about what you don't see. You know, stop making these rash judgments. God doesn't exist. I got a point in one of my earliest, probably the earliest video that's my first one that I put up on YouTube. And I was listening to it the other day with Bill. And, uh, and on my point was, you know, does one man know 100% of anything that there is to know? And the answer is no. Because for you to know 100% of everything there is to know, you would have to know what, you know, a little earthworm was doing out in your backyard. You would have to know what's going on on Pluto right now. You know what I mean? And when you start looking at that, no one man knows everything. Well, would one man know 50% of what there is to know? There's no chance. And it goes down the line, you know, the most intelligent men on the earth would only know a point zero zero, maybe one or two or something like that of what there is to know. Even the best scientists are still within a field. They step one step to the side of their field and they're, they're sort of, in a sense, not qualified to speak or make any judgments on. So they're within their realm of influence, their realm of knowledge, but that knowledge is still very, very small in the scheme of things. But then you talk to that person about music and playing piano or something, and they probably can't do it. So they don't know much. Men don't know much, yet in their arrogance and their pride, they think that the 99 point whatever percent they don't know, they still are convinced God doesn't exist in that. Is there a possibility that God exists in the 99% that you don't know? Absolutely, absolutely. In my opinion, most assuredly, God exists. And not that, just that, he's not a distant God, a God that's not acting in creation. He's a God, he's a personal God, he's a God that loves you, he's a God that died for you, he's a God that wants to be in relationship with you, he's a God that hears prayers, he's a God that answers prayers. He's a God that wants to come close and guide you through your life and be involved in every aspect of your life and you can talk to him, you can be with him and you can love him right back and you can worship him, you can praise him, you can thank him and you can live a better life as a result of knowing him. Amen. You know, so, man, just... God is there. All we have to do is open the possibility of it in our mind. Just say, Lord... You know, reveal more of who you are to me. And he's a personal God. He will. He loves it when you ask that question. He goes, okay, absolutely. Let me show you some really amazing stuff. And, you know, the more I ask God just to show me stuff, uh, the more exciting my life gets. You know, just preparing this sermon has been a mind blow for me because there's a lot of things that I didn't know when I started studying for it. And I've been, you know, quite a few weeks now just immersing myself in this subject. 
And, uh, and what I've just told you now, that's my introduction to it. I'm going to go, when I say in depth, it won't lose you, but it will certainly help solidify that, what I'm, uh, what, that God is true, that evolution has got a lot of shortfalls. And you must very, you know, be wary before you accept blindly what your science teacher is teaching you in the classroom. You know, be wary. Consider the other side. Amen? All right, let's pray. Uh, thank you for this time now. Thank you for the sermon. I pray that, Lord, it, it's really reached into everyone's hearts and uh, helped uh, each and every one of us to consider things we may have not considered or just to put together or fill in the blanks or, uh, um, you know, complete the picture in our minds of, of what we maybe thought was so but we didn't know or had articulated accurately. So I pray that this message has really uh, done that in us and uh, will help us to be stronger and, and more sure of our faith and want to live uh, uh, as Christians and, and follow you, Lord. And so I do pray that you will bless each and every one of us here today, uh, that you would guide us all through life um, and uh, keep us on the right path at all times so we don't stray from, from you and stray from the truth. Help us to have that uh, uh, spirit in us to be very um, uh, diligent, as humans to uh, walk this path uh, each and every day and not to just uh, get sucked in or led astray by everything the world is presenting to us or sucking us into. So, Lord, I also just lift up Tammy Levesque and Roman Levesque uh, again. We've prayed already today. And, Lord, I just pray that you, you really do come upon them powerfully uh, and uh, do some miracles in their life, perform and fulfil the things that you've spoken into their hearts I pray that you will uh, alleviate all the problems they're going through, uh, financial, health-wise, and other other things that are going on in their life. I pray that you will um, uh, correct these circumstances so that they will uh, live, be able to live a life and have a testimony on their lips, which will be just awe-inspiring to listen to in, in, in days to come. So please help them have the breakthroughs that they're praying for, Lord. And we all agree together. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon. If you search Rob Cartledge in the iTunes store or go to www.robcartledge.com, you'll see a number of different sermon series. Uncovering Religion, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, Apologetics 101, Critical Doctrine and End Times. Feel free to check them out.